Welcome back to the Soundtracker Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Peacock. So if you've been listening for a while, you probably noticed something's a little off here, and that is that my microphone died. Uh, it happened right before I recorded this episode. So it's actually pretty funny because when I start the episode, I talk about how important this one is to me. And this is one of those things that happens. Thankfully, it wasn't catastrophic. This uh, Surface Pro that I have has a, a great built-in microphone too. So it wasn't the end of the world. And I made it a full 16 episodes as a big oaf who has no idea what I'm doing as far as recording a podcast goes without any sort of technical errors. And the one that happened wasn't even my fault. And it wasn't one of those ones that, you know, I'm going to go put on Joker face paint and commit crimes like I got done and there was no audio. It was just, I sound a little off and the new one's on the way. So, you know, it, it, I'll count this as a win, even though um, I'll be annoyed about it until I'm cold and in the ground. Uh, the other difference here is, so as far as this goes, the soundtracks are among my favorites of the 90s. The movie's among my favorites of the 90s. But I wanted somebody on here who appreciated the movie. I can talk about old soul music for hours. I don't. I keep it to about 20, 25 minutes. Um, but I wanted somebody who was more into the movie than the soundtracks because I knew I could take over during the soundtrack portion and, and do that part justice. But I wanted somebody who was really into the movies. And from talking to Felix about the movie, he absolutely gets it. He's been a longtime fan as well. So, you know, as far as this goes, Felix, uh, I appreciate him kind of letting me prattle on about soul music for about 25 minutes at the end. But I wanted somebody who got the movie and Felix absolutely does. And uh, I'm really excited for you all to hear it despite the audio issues. So it's coming up here in a second. And if you're not following along, you can follow me on Twitter at soundtracker with an underscore at the end. That's S O U N D T R A C K E R with an underscore. And uh, you know, warts and all here's the episode. I hope you enjoy. It's running in nowhere to hide. The beast is coming and he's got you in his sights. He ain't gonna miss you and he ain't gonna mess around. If you're a movie with original songs, the soundtrack I'm gonna track you down. Oh yeah. All right, everyone, welcome back. So today is Dead Presidents, and this is a really big one for me because there were a handful of movies that I would say really inspired me to do this show. And this one in particular is one that the movie is just as much of an inspiration as the soundtracks were. I've, I've loved this movie since it came out, and I feel like it has not gotten its fair shake. And I have Felix Biederman here with me today. How you doing, Felix? I'm I'm good. I am. I was really happy when you suggested this movie this is one of my favorite movies the book that the story in the movie comes out of is one of my favorite books i love this movie like i've i've watched it god knows how many times i re-watched it again yesterday i always expect there to be like some critical or like social media reevaluation of it like especially by younger people you know because this movie came out about 25 years ago now uh, or 26 years ago and I always expect like maybe younger people to see this and go, oh, holy shit, this is like an amazing movie. I, I always expect that with the entire Hughes Brothers pre 9-11 catalog because they have such good like, you know, this is what happens in the Empire shit when they were allowed to before 9-11. But especially this movie because it's the performances are amazing. There's not a single performance, not even bad. Like every performance is incredible. There's none beneath like 
great. The soundtrack, amazing. The story, which is a true story, is fucking riveting and tragic. It's just, it's like a perfect movie. And you just, you do not see people talk about it nearly enough. And you just nailed it. That's one of those things I have said for years. I mean, on Twitter, anywhere I could like, I've been thinking about this movie pretty much since it first came out, you know, because I was a huge fan of Menace when it came out. And when this came out, I was super excited, like another Hughes Brothers movie. And then the reviews came out and I was like, well, fuck. And then I finally saw it and I was like, what What the fuck was everyone talking about? Like, this is incredible. And I have literally been like 26 years now, as you said, I have been like screaming about this movie to anyone who will listen about how good it is. And it's funny because there's times where I'm like, am I overblowing this? Maybe it's better like than I thought. Because if you look on IMDb, it has a seven, which is, a you know, I mean, not putting a lot of stock into IMDb, but just saying that's a pretty solid rating. Yeah. If you look at it, though. It's only on 21,000 ratings. So I just picked a random shitty movie from 1995. And what I picked was The Net. (laughs) I remember that movie. (laughs) The Net has 64,000 ratings. So like, now granted, Dead Presidents has the higher score. But plenty more people have seen a shitty movie like The Net than have seen Dead Presidents. And then with your tweet yesterday about this movie. A lot of the comments were saying the same thing. We're like, I feel like this movie is underappreciated. It's under, you know, like, so I'm not crazy here. Like I started to question, like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this movie is more well-liked than I thought, but it, it is certainly not. And so that's why I'm really, really happy to be doing this today, because I feel like this movie is so in need of a reevaluation or a rediscovery by younger generations and even people our age that may have, or I guess I'm probably, I'm older than you, my age and your age, that maybe at the time either brushed it off or you know what I mean? Like it is, it's just so right for that. And I I just, I hope it gets it at some point. What were the reviews like at the time? I've never actually read reviews from like 95 when this came out. I am curious about that because I think like in 95, like considering who film critics were largely then this would be like a pretty uncomfortable movie to watch for a lot of them. Right. Because this is, I mean, Hughes brothers pre nine 11. It's like, no, this is what we do in the empire. This is what we do to the under to like the black underclass. And was it like the vibe of the reviews was like they just it was hard for them to watch or what? What was it? I am curious. It was more so people that felt like it was a bunch of cool scenes and cool ideas that didn't gel together well. It's a 45% on Rotten Tomatoes. Just had to double check the score. And even like, I go to bat for Ebert all the time on here, but even he, you know, he gave it a negative review. Two and a half. So he was right on the fence, but it was that same deal where he was like, it's a lot of great ideas that just don't gel together well in the end. Which is, again, when we get to the movie discussion, I'll talk about that part. But that's fucking crazy to me. I couldn't disagree more. Like, out of all the reasons to, like, criticize, like, that's insane. No, no fucking way. No way. No shot on that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I've given him plenty of props on here, but I've also said that he doesn't always get it right. And it's just, it's crazy to me. And uh, just last week, I did Roadhouse. And we talked about how these movies now that have, like, gained a bit of a following or people have grown to like them. And you get newer critics on Rotten Tomatoes that maybe weren't alive at the time they came out or people that they have these reevaluations where the scores inflate. But even now, this is still sitting at a 45 on there. And I'm like, I'm mad about it. Like, I'm like mad talking about it. Like, it deserves so much better than that. Because honestly, I mean, I'll lay my cards down right now and I'll say that I think it's one of the best American films of the 90s. I have no problem saying that. I have zero problem saying that. I think it's probably top three for me if I had to pick my favorite movies of the 90s. It's very high up there for me. In general, I have, t- I have a tough time like breaking things down into decades like that. I never do that with films. I'm not like, 
I don't know a ton about movies or haven't even seen like that many compared to other people. But like, I don't know enough about film to like evaluate it in this way where it's like, oh, it's like X percent as good as Goodfellas. But in the same way, when you when I see Casino or Goodfellas on something, I'm probably going to watch it. And like, even if I'm just like cleaning up my apartment or doing some other shit, I just like, you know, I like that movie so fucking much that I'm just going to like, I'm going to have it on. I've seen it so many times. Every scene is so good to me. And anytime I tap into it, like I stop what I'm doing to watch it again, I'm just going to love what I'm seeing. It's like, it's in the same mental category for me as those movies, you know? Yeah, 100%. Like it's a pickup movie. Like you could start at any point and just keep watching it. Now, here's the thing. I'm the same way though. Like I forget about shit. Just recently, I've been going on about how my favorite movie in 95 was Tales from the Hood. It got brought up on Twitter, and then I've talked about it on the episode that I did. And the funny thing is, I'm going off of my letterbox shit because I forget everything that I've seen. So, And I've only had letterboxed for a short time, and I had not rated Dead Presidents yet. And so like today I was thinking about it, and I'm like, Christ, I was like not correct at all. Like Dead Presidents is my favorite movie in 95. So it's it happens, man. Like Even me who like watches a ton of shit and like worries about this stuff, I, I had forgotten about it. So I'm not good at making lists either, and if I sat and made one, I might find out I'm way off on the top three thing, but just kind of going on gut instinct. I just, I really love this movie. And uh, when I first talked to you about doing this, you know, as always, you were gracious as shit and like, yeah, I'll do a show, you know? And the first thing that I had saw you tweeting about set it off. I'm like, well, let's do set it off. Then it was after Will and I did escape from LA that he was like, Felix loves dead presidents. And I was like, oh shit. So like I messaged you right away about it. And uh, it is kind of funny to think about, I feel like set it off is almost like a spiritual successor to this movie. And I don't want to get off on a tangent about set it off, but like one of the things you said about set it off. And I feel like it's true for this movie is that it's a message movie that never feels like it's setting you down and lecturing you. And I feel like that's true for this as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Like both are great movies and both like, Yeah, I imagine that you're going to talk about Set It Off. But, like, you know, they're both, like, sort of heist movies, but really, like, way more than that. But it also, like, with both of them, it's like they are, yeah, issue movies. With Dead Presidents, Dead Presidents is, for people who don't know, it's based on this book, Bloods, which was compiled by Wallace Terry, who is a journalist. It's several different oral histories of black veterans of Vietnam. I read it at an interesting time in my life. Uh, I was, like, 14 or so. This is when I thought I was like, um, oh, I, I I should like be a special forces officer so I can like get elected as like a liberal senator, like dumb shit like that. You just think when you're 13, 14. And then I were like, I read Bloods and I was like, oh, uh, yeah, no, never mind. Not that I would have been like treated like those guys in the book were, but like it disabuses you of a lot of your notions of the military or like just any type of like honor dignity or in imperial service like that but it is like that entire book is great because it's like it runs the gamut of people's different experiences it's not a polemic because you do there are guys in there who will talk about like horrifying shit they saw horrifying shit they did and their conclusion will be like yeah but in the end i'm like glad we did it because we had to tell china and russia like stop that shit stop encroaching on these countries and it worked but then and then of course you'd have guys like haywood kirkland who this you know his story this movie's based off of it's like Oh my God, holy shit. Like with Haywood's story, the story in this movie, the Lorenz Tate character, um, this sense I got reading it and the thing they got with this movie that they uniquely got was like, you know how you just in your life, there are just some people who are unlucky 
And every small or somewhat big life event they have is a gamble, just by the nature of how often things break bad for them. They, they, every day is a gamble. Every day is a gamble they mostly lose. There are just people like that who aren't really doing anything crazy, aren't taking these insane risks usually, but it just they're just like that. We've We've all known people like that. But you have that, but then add in being black in the 70s in America and also like getting the most PTSD ever. And it's like, well, damn, this guy was already off for like a rough start, like just being an unlucky guy. But then like all this shit. And I feel like the movie does such a fucking good job of setting it up in that way. Lorenz Tate is so good at portraying that in the pre-Vietnam scenes, especially. And I like his, like, um, you see him at the beginning where he's got that sort of naive idealism about going off and fighting. You know what I mean? Like, he's at the dinner table and he feels like this is like, well, this could be my chance to do something because he sees where he's at is maybe not going to get him anywhere. And it just makes his life exponentially worse. Yeah, he ends up in the kind of the exact same place he was in, but everything is, as you said, exponentially worse. Like, literally with the exact same people. Yeah, they all come home and they're all fucked. Mm -hmm. So, actually, did you know, I actually found out that uh, Haywood Kirkland was actually on set as a supervisor for Lorenz Tate. Like, he supervised him, like, for throughout the movie and was, like, his, like, right-hand man and kind of, like, led him through how things were. Oh, that's awesome. That's good. Yeah. So they they brought him into it. And uh, yeah. And, you know, I read Bloods back in college and leading up to this. I wish I would have had time to go back and revisit it because college was a long time ago for me. And it's been a while. But I, I am at some point I'm going to revisit that book because it's a really, really, really good book. And it's it's despairing. But it's I don't know. It's great. It's great. There are some very, like, beautiful, poignant things said in that book. I think everyone should read it. If people are at all like interested in like empire or war or just like little facets, like everyone I think listening to this probably broadly knows like the last 50, 60 years of American history, but just like little things that you had never thought of like day to day life. I, I hope that everyone reads it. Talk about books that should be assigned in high school and shit. Everyone should everyone should read that book in high school because again it's not like a polemic as I said it's just like you read it and you interpret it because it does like there are guys in there a lot of combat veterans and then there's like yeah a guy in there who was high up in the navy and like trying to work with Zumwalt to like break down more like segregation barriers that were you know not as explicit as just the segregation that Truman killed through executive order and I think was that forty nine. A lot of just things that you would have never thought about, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, I know as you're saying this, like it will never be assigned in school. No, never. It's just not that type of book, but it it absolutely should be because it's gripping. You know, I don't use that word. I don't think I've ever used the word gripping, but it's a gripping read the whole thing straight through. And like you said, yeah, it's not a polemic. It's just a fascinating read. And there's really no reason it shouldn't be something that kids are assigned in school. You know, like it's, I can't think of any good reason other than it kind of paints out the idea that selling your body to the army is not maybe the way to go. That's the real reason. That's like, among other things, that's like a reason you wouldn't see it in public school because it is like, I mean, there are guys in there who are like, I'm happy I was a Marine or I, I was happy I was in the army, blah, blah, blah. But there, there are a lot where it's just like, you know, the guys are just very plainly saying what happened. And it's like, oh yeah, no, soldiers can be fucking terrible. 
They could do some of the worst things that you never thought a person could do. War is terrible. Yeah, but, you know, they've got to have that table up front where people recruit those yeah. high school kids coming into the building there, so they can't have you reading this. <laughs> I bet, I, you know what I think it is? Probably in, like, a hundred years from that book coming out. Then they'll do it, because it's, it'll be the thing they always do, where it's like, oh, well, they aren't, like, the military used to be bad like this. But, like, now, like, none of this stuff would ever happen. Right. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the movie here a little bit. It opened on October 6th, 1995, and as I said earlier, it came out to middling reviews. I think the reason that it had middling reviews is because it was a follow-up to Menace to Society, and I feel like you come off with a debut that strong. Now, I prefer this to Menace. I love Menace, but I prefer this to Menace. But I feel like when you come up with a debut that strong, people were expecting maybe more of this. I don't know, but I feel like it's just a tough sophomore album, a tough sophomore movie, you know? And I feel like it was kind of hit with that stigma. But again, I'm not going to harp on this too much, but it's amazing to me, you know, because Menace is such a small scale story. It's told in, there's not like a whole bunch of big sets just on ambition alone. I don't see how this movie didn't get more respect. They went from doing something like that to doing this like sweeping fucking epic that takes you all the way to Vietnam with like war scenes and a heist. And they only made this for 15 million. It's like one of those middle budget. How the fuck did they do that? I know. I know. I was shocked when I saw that budget. I thought it was going to be higher, but they did this entire thing for $15 million. So it's just an incredible, incredible movie magic sort of bit of filmmaking that they managed to pull something this grand off for that price, especially following a movie like Menace, which was such a small scale affair that they were able to jump into something like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I do not get that. Like, I mean, I, again, like I love Menace, but I don't see how you can watch both movies and think that this one isn't like this one is especially thinking that Ebert criticism where he's saying that, uh, you know, it just feels like a collection of like good scenes that don't really flow together. I feel this movie comes together way more artfully than a lot of the stuff in Menace does. Like Menace really, like really, really fucking leans on narration a lot. And I think it's a good stylistic choice, but like, what would that movie look like without narration? Yeah. I mean, I've, I love Menace, but I always feel like it was cheating a tad with the narration being told from the perspective of somebody who, I mean, I guess you could assume that his narration is being told in his dying moments, but you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah, it kind of sets you up like, okay, well, he's going to come out. Okay. Who dies? Then, yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, again, it's just one of those things that's always going to baffle me and I don't want to keep harping on the ratings when this came out, but it just annoys me. So the top five for the weekend that it came out was seven. Number two is Assassins, which isn't that the one with like Stallone or something? Or Yeah, that's Stallone. Stallone yeah. Uh, number three was Dead Presidents. Now, here's one thing. Dead Presidents took the three spot playing on half the screens as the rest of the top two. So, you know, it played on like 1100 screens where those were like 2300. So, you know, it did respectable numbers and probably could have done better had it gotten a wider release, but that was that was what it ended up getting was the uh, sort of smaller scale release. Number four was To Die For, and number five was How to Make an American Quilt, which I didn't believe was a real movie. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> uh, I actually had to look it up. It's got like, I uh, forget who's in it, Winona Ryder or something is in it. I don't know. It's something I absolutely do not remember at all. And then the top five for the month was Seven, Get Shorty, Assassins, Dead Presidents, and once again, How to Make an American Quilt, which I'm still not convinced is real, even after looking it up and seeing pictures. I'm not I'm not saying this to like be edgy or, or like crude or anything, but like 
Is that the is like is it about like the AIDS quilt? You know, I don't remember what it was about. I'm, I'll, I'll kind of like pull that up in the background in a second as I'm looking. I'm looking it up now. Okay, it's um, no, no. This is what the fuck is? It? <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's like a romantic drama with uh, Dermot Mulroney and Winona Ryder. Okay, I was right about. I've Ellen. never heard of that movie. No, I, like I said I was like, this isn't real. This is a fake movie. This is something that was made up. No, yeah, this is like a movie that would be in 30 Rock. <laughs> that's, yeah, I was trying to think of some sort of comparison, and that's exactly it. <laughs> that's crazy. I've never heard of that shit. <laughs> um, okay, I did Roadhouse last episode, and I could have. I had enough facts and background information and trivia to fill a fucking novel, and I with this movie not getting the love it deserves, there was almost nothing on this. So the only really interesting things that I could find is that originally the role of Delilah was offered to Jada Pinkett, who had to turn it down, the reason being that because of the whole altercation between Tupac and um, Alan Hughes on the set of Menace to Society, oh, yeah. her and him being friends, she turned the movie down, which is funny because she ended up being and set it off down the road. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, time heals all wounds, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did a similar heist movie, just not for the Hughes brother. <laughs> yeah. um, the movie was heavily edited before release. So there were a lot of scenes cut and one of the big scenes was the heist sequence, which apparently when it first came out, it was getting threatened with an NC 17 rating. So they had to pull that off. So as of 2021, there has yet to be a Blu-ray release and the closest it's come to a deluxe release at this point is criterion did a laser disc back in the day that had a commentary track uh, featured some of that cut content, but only as extras, but none of it was placed back into the film. Now I did just see that criterion put out menace. So I'm hoping, 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 that that means down the road, maybe this gets one. And especially if they put those deleted scenes back in and restore some of it, because there are parts, and we'll get this, we get the movie discussion where I, I don't know what the deleted scenes were outside of the fact that they had to cut down a lot of the gore and the heist. But I feel like I can pinpoint at least a couple of areas where they might've had to trim some fat off. That's it. That's interesting. Where do you think they would put them? Well, I do feel like it kind of goes from all of a sudden they're in the car like, okay, we're going to rob this place. I feel like there might have been a little bit more lead up to that that might have been cut. Yeah. And I also feel like maybe some shit with Delilah got cut because all of a sudden she just becomes an important character in the movie again. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I agree. Like if there's any part that like doesn't bleed together super well, it's like I'd say like the last quarter of the movie or not even doesn't bleed together super well, just like not as well as the rest of it. Okay. So a little bit more on the Kirkland thing. So yeah, the Kirkland story, you, you said it was largely based on that. Kirkland was not happy with, the only thing he wasn't happy with is the heist sequence that it had all that violence in it because they didn't resort to violence during his heist. Actually, I love the way that they did it. You know, he worked for the post office and floated around a little bit after the post office. But when he came back, you know, he came back to all the shit that people coming back from Vietnam were subjected to then factoring in that he was also, you said, a black man in 1969, who at that point is going to have it more rough than a white soldier returning home. And him and his friends, yeah, they devised this plan to rob a postal truck because when he was working for the post office, he had heard that they take these trucks of money to get rid of these worn American bills that had come from Europe. And uh, so, yeah, they say so smeared their faces in ash. One of the guys dressed like a postal worker and they ended up getting $382,000 in worn out bills that were taken to be destroyed. And they told the driver uh, at one point, they told him, uh, tell him that the robbers were white, but then they changed their mind and said, just tell him some brothers robbed me and they all look alike. <laughs> but he was not happy 
yeah, with the, the violence because they didn't resort to that. But he also understood they were making a movie for Hollywood and they weren't basing it 100% on his life. And the Hughes brothers were upfront when they bought the rights to Terry's book and Kirkland's story that they were not doing a like 100% accurate retelling of his story. So, okay, let's talk about the movie a little bit itself, like the feelings on the movie and what it is that we like so much about this. So one thing that I kind of realized watching it this time is I'm a huge fan of anthologies, be they like horror anthologies or short story collections. And this movie does sort of play like an anthology. You know, you've got three very different stories. You got the coming of age story that starts it off. You get the middle with Vietnam and you get a heist movie to end it. But the through line through this, the, the thing that holds it all together is the characters. And I, like I said, I agree with you that like, I don't understand how you could think that they don't tie together well, because the characters are obviously what this all hangs on. But I think that's a huge part of what makes me enjoy this movie so much coming back to it now and looking at it is like my, my love for sort of anthology films and that this sort of plays out like one in a way with the three completely different stories that run back to back. Yeah. And like, I, I would say like the two things that sort of like hold this together and this is weird to say because one of these characters isn't in that huge middle portion, but Lorenz Tate and Keith David like really make this feel like very cohesive to me because I, okay. So like Lorenz Tate playing at Haywood when he's young, before he goes to Vietnam, he does such a good job of like portraying like sort of like virginal and seeking out something that he can't really describe and naive and like, like all, all the scenes that they pick for that are so good. Like would he like basically tells like Terrence Howard, like, Hey, you cheated at betting against me in pool. <laughs> like like that, that you would say that to like, yeah, like a career criminal. I actually had that in my notes here. It's just how he like, first of all, Terrence Howard's introduction to that movie is great. So good. He's amazing. In that. But that he can't recognize that this is a guy you don't want to like, like, he just, yeah, he's like innocent and childlike. Like, Hey, you, you know, you cheated. Like, yeah, this guy's going to like whoop your fucking ass or cut you or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But Keith David does such a good job in sort of like, uh, uh, like this, th this sort of like secondary father figures you get when you're, you, you know, at, at the tail end of your childhood, like that character is. Keith David is so good because he is, it's not in that he's menacing because he can play that super well, but in the way that he is like pretty sweet to him and feels this obligation to him and feels that he has to show him things and tell him things like up until their final scene together. And Keith David setting the palette that way with how he behaves towards that character throughout it, it makes it feel cohesive to me because even, you know, after Vietnam, after he gets back, and even after they, like, do the heist, it's like, he's, like, a kid still. He still, like, doesn't really get how anything is supposed to work. It's not that he's stupid or that he's I immature. It's just that he, like, he just doesn't, it doesn't fucking click for him. Because why would it? Like, nothing has made sense in his life since he became an adult. And, like, showing showing him as being in some like morbid way in his element in Vietnam or like learning to be in an element just to stay alive, then showing him back home where everything feels like foreign and fucked up and it doesn't make sense. And it's the same, but far worse. That gives it like a complete sense of cohesion to me. And then when, you know, we get back and when we do the heist and everything, having it so Keith David's character still feels this bond with him to the point that like, you know, when they get arrested, that like Keith David is like waving the broom around. It's like, no, run out the back. It's like the just little things like that are so fucking good that for me, at least it's like, yeah, this feels like a complete story. 
that bleeds together. I love that he tries to protect him at the end. Yeah. That that's just such a great moment. And it's like not something they even draw attention to. He's just like, run, kid. You know, it's like swinging that pool key with the cops. But like, yeah, even up to that point. Because the thing is, you know, your introduction to Keith David, and I I love Keith David as an actor. And I think Kirby might be his best role. Um, yeah, maybe. It's, it's a tough call because he's done a lot. But the thing about him is, you know that when you first meet him, he's into shady shit. Like he's got a kid running numbers for him. But immediately you know that he's not just using anthony you know what i mean like yeah and you know and then i feel like in some other movies that would have been like he would have been that character you know what i mean like a, a movie with a less sort of like deft approach i feel like he would have been like the shady guy who like got him into trouble but that's not the case like he was looking out for anthony yeah and also anthony is always like at least before vietnam like seeking out something that he can't quite describe which is that's the experience of like being young maybe even especially if you're like middle class as anthony is and that's what he wants and he gets it he wants to he wants to look into a world he doesn't quite understand that's more exciting than the one he feels predestined to yeah i agree um the performances in this from top to bottom are incredible but chris tucker is so sneaky good in this movie because the thing is Chris Tucker is kind of playing that Chris Tucker character throughout the movie, but it's little subtleties that he does. His character's, I think, the mo- to me, the most heartbreaking one because he's just like a fun-loving guy who gets fucking... You know, Anthony wanted to go at least. Now, it doesn't mean... I'm not saying, like, I don't feel sorry for him at all, but Skip is just a dude who wants to have fun. You know what I mean? Yes. He's yanked into this shit and comes back worse than he was before. And you just... These little subtle things to his character that he does... Like I said, he's sneaky good because, it, and even after he gets back and he's traumatized, yes. he still does some of that Chris Tucker sort of like the character that he was sort of known for at that time, sort of uh, ticks, I guess. But he adds this layer to it that I, I don't know. I just think his performance is incredible in this movie. Yeah, yeah. He, I think what makes that performance so good with Skip is that he doesn't like he's still like a jocular guy after he gets back. But he shows him as being hollowed out while still retaining a lot of that shell, which is like really fucking tough to do. That is really fucking hard to portray. And he nails it where it's like you'd like that's how it would be if like you fucked a guy like that up so bad that it's like, yeah, he would still like kind of want to be like the guy who's making everyone laugh, like the center of intention in some respect. But you have carved out so much of what was behind that through what you have put him through. And that's a lot of like, kind of like very tough nonverbal acting. The part that I was talking about too, that like really it's right when Anthony gets back and he sees Skip, you know, sitting downtown, nodded off in the sun and he gets up and walks him back and he's trying to pull that old Skip sort of swagger. And he makes it, I think it's as a mom joke that he makes or something. But like, as soon as Anthony walks away, it's just this little sort of drops that facade and this look that he gets on his face where it's like, yeah, like you said, it's hollowed out. He's a hollowed out version of what he used to be. It's just phenomenal without overdoing, you know, it could have been something that was overdone too, where it's like, but it's just little subtle things that he added to his normal sort of jocular bravado sort of character that he was prior to going over that just makes it. Yeah. I just think it's a great performance that he puts in, in this movie. I mean, yeah, everyone, everyone is amazing in this. What more could you ask for from a cast? Well, and I like that you get to see, you know, Keith David, um, to that part where, you get to see a little bit of Keith David doing like the the funny side of Keith David when he gets his leg <laughs> gets his yeah leg that guy and it's like wrong it's leg motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> when he gets him up close with the gun down on the ground it's like a bizarro version of his character that he plays in the uh, 
Emilio Estevez um, classic men at work that he's just like a, a loony veteran, but he, 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 like you see a little bit of that come out, you know, he's a, he's a very funny actor when he wants to be. So I'm glad you get to see a little bit. There's another part too, where I talked about in the roadhouse episode, how I love when you come in on a character in the middle of saying something ridiculous. And there's that part where Anthony comes in on him when he comes back and you come in and what he's saying is uh, something along the lines of this kid telling a story. And it's like, it's you jump into Keith David telling a story about when she took off those drawers, I'd ever thought I was going to stop seeing ass and just like everybody laughing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Really funny things to walk in on. <laughs> and it's such a, it, that's such a good character insight too. Even though this is like a pretty dense and like long movie, I feel like the Hughes brothers are like specifically great at like, yeah, using something like that to tell you so much about the character that he's like, he's like that type of guy that he's trying to, he's finding a, like a funny turn of phrase for like a sex story that he's telling like at his job. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, all the pre, all the pre-nom stuff. I'm a huge fan of like the coming of age sort of area. Like I feel like the, the scene where he loses his virginity is like sufficiently awkward without getting cartoonish. Like it's, it's not one of those things where like he like, nuts in two seconds you know what i mean i realize that it it is supposed to be that he's quick but it's not one of those things where it's like all of a sudden he's just like oh my god when it you know it's but it's like awkward like they don't know what they're doing him finding her stuffing her bra um the the dinner scene with his sort of smarmy brother where like in any other movie it would be like he's the and he is kind of an asshole but like you know there's that whole bit where it's like the family doesn't understand him he's like a main character who wants to live by his own rules but the thing is in this movie they're right you know what I mean? Like he has yeah. no business going over to Vietnam. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it runs just by the nature of like the story that it's telling. It runs counter to everything that you see in coming of age movies because it's like, I mean, I do think I do think of this phrase that's like gained currency with younger people now, like the idea of being like a main character, which is like the I feel like the joke with that kind of is like. Yeah, no, you do. Yeah, you don't want to follow everyone else's rules. You you don't have to follow everyone else's path. You you know, things break differently for you. Everything is a gamble that you usually, in some way, win. Right? Um, this movie does a very good job of showing that you know he is that main character and he feels all those things, but he's in in one key way, in the way that is most important to us, very fucking wrong. And all the other shit he feels like before vietnam and around it of like he's like there just there has to be something more than what i see that's normal that's like something that like young people feel but it's not like they don't they don't make him like more special than he needs to be yeah that's you you said it better than i could he's no more special than he needs to be in the movie he's just a he's just a kid so and that's what makes the the jump from and I love I really think it's a great image when they jump from the coming of age story to Vietnam where he you know he just got done with this like wild night with his girlfriend and the mom comes home and he's cutting through backyards and then it just boom he's running through the fucking jungle in Vietnam. I love the way they cut that scene together. Yeah, no, it's such a good like jarring cut. Like the Vietnam scenes, I feel like with the Vietnam scenes they want them to all be like horrifying. And they do such a good job of just like thrusting you into that. And it's funny because I didn't realize until this time, because I saw him in the cast list. I didn't realize that uh, Martin, the guy who's dying on the ground when you first come to Vietnam is Sticky Fingers from Onyx. Yeah. Yeah. It's him dying on the ground. But when you get to Nam, you also get one of the other standout performances in this, which is Bokeem Woodbine. And I'm so fucking glad that he's had this little bit of a renaissance as far as being in Fargo. Like he's a great actor. 
And it was so cool seeing him pop up in that again, because he was one of those, like I put him in one of those like nineties guys. I've called them on this before where he was a guy who was in like all kinds of shit in the nineties and then sort of quietly just did smaller work in the two thousands. But yeah, Cleon is such a great character. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I feel like it could play as over the top, but the thing is like that scene where he cuts that guy's head off and carries it around. That's based on a real incident. Like that's not something they did for the movie. Like there, I'm sure that there were motherfuckers like Cleon all over Vietnam back when the war was going on. Yeah. That is something that is in the Haywood story in bloods that a guy carried a head in a burlap sack for about three weeks. I think he said, and the XO made him throw it out. Yeah. Cleon is such a good character because it, it, like, again, with this, this movie takes a lot of characters that seem familiar to you, whether it's like the, you know, cool, older career criminal or the like, you know, main character coming of age male protagonist or, you know, the cheating girlfriend, shit like that. And now, you know, the religious psycho, the sociopath, it does such a good job of like having those characters and like needing those characters because they are like, even if they weren't like fully a part of the original story of Haywood Kirkland, you need them to make this movie. It does a good job of taking those characters, but making them trusting the audience enough that you don't have to exaggerate them. And it, it, it overall just gives you such a, a more, I don't want to say realistic, but like I would get, like I would say evocative feeling because it doesn't break your immersion. Yeah. I also want to give dead presidents props for being, I think the only movie ever made that has like Vietnam scenes or takes place in Vietnam that doesn't use all along the watchtower at some point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A very refreshing change of pace. You know, I mean, there's some actually really great character actors in the Vietnam scenes, like uh, Michael Imperioli as the guy who has the really fucking terrible, terrible fate when he ventures off to piss and they find him with that. Might I add a very realistic prosthetic dick? Yeah, holy shit. That is like, (laughs) the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my fucking God, that's going to be stuck in my mind forever. (laughs) Yeah. I like still like, my my, my, like bones curl when I think about it. (laughs) Well, and then you got that scene where Dugan headbutts that guy. And there's two really good broken nose effects in this movie where people get to hit the nose and it just fucking spurts everywhere. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, And I can't remember the actor's name who plays Dugan right now, but yeah. I love his reaction to going back to the aforementioned scene where Cleon's cutting that guy's head off. Cause it almost at that point ventures into like some sort of horror film territory where everybody's just kind of like nervously looking and Dugan's like nervously, like what's going on, Cleon, are you hungry or something? But like, you could tell that like trying to make a joke, but they're fucking terrified of whatever this guy's capable of at this point. Yeah. Yeah. They, and that scene works because they made Cleon such like a realistic psycho, such a, like they didn't, they, trusted the audience and they trusted the performance enough that they it was like it it's like okay you get it like this guy's fucked up but he's not a cartoon no not at all well and you know another scene that this does well it, it, so many movies and a lot of war movies have had the kill me sequence like that's like an overdone thing at this point but it works in this one because Lorenz Tate really sells that scene well like he's you know, I, I could drum on about Lorenz Tate as an actor because he was a really, not was, he still is, a really great actor. I just feel like he should have been bigger than he ended up being. You know what I mean? Like, Lorenz Tate, if you want to see his range, watch this movie. I mean, he was a little bit younger. He was tw- he was 19 when they were making this movie. Oh, sh- holy shit. fuck. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but like, man... Man, what a fucking talent. That's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, he had a good, you know, Love Jones is a great movie, but like, yeah. he feels like, again, he's one of those guys who, maybe a 90s guy, maybe I'll throw him in that category where, you know, he stayed working. 
but he's just never had that huge role that I thought that he was going to end up getting at some point. And that kind of sucks because I think he's just incredible in that. But, oh, another thing that I noticed about this movie too is I, I don't usually get into like the film dork aspects when I do this, but their use of color in this movie is just incredible. Like the early scenes with the pre-nom stuff, you know, lighting and stuff, it's all very sunny and bright. And like, there's like an optimism to it. And then it just progressively, like their color palettes and the lighting gets bleaker and bleaker as the movie goes on. Yeah, yeah. But like within that, every scene like pre-nom with Keith David, there's like a dustiness in every co- in the composition and like a sort of like a great use of like shadows and sort of like, how would you describe it? Almost like um, muted light. To show that this is like this is like a bit of that different world that he wants. Absolutely, this is one of those things that I kind of kind of struck me this time watching. And then by the time you get to the heist, everything is like so like it's so the the color palette is stripped down to like three colors when they're doing the heist. You know what I mean? Like it's there's some really great shots in this movie. Some really striking sort of composition and shots in this movie. But so yeah, then he gets back. You know, and you get the. I talked about the scene when he walks in on Kirby, but Kirby has like four great lines in that part where he's, uh, you know, the two off the top of my head is when he's like, pigs are greedy. I'm dealing with the NYPD. They're the greediest, most corrupt pigs on the face of the earth. And then, and then uh, well, a line that I should start putting in my repertoire here is um, I'd rather eat cat shit with a knitting needle, which is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's two really great uncredited roles in this movie. Martin Sheen goes uncredited in this. Now his part's very small, but Seymour Cassell is kind of great as Saul. He almost feels like another, uh, he's, even though it's a very small part, you kind of gather this part that he might be the sort of thing that's helping Anthony keep it together a little bit because things really go off the rails once Saul closes his shop down because things are fucked up for him. You know, he comes back, yeah. he's got Clifton Powell as Cuddy, who is really fucking menacing in this movie, man. Oh, yeah, just a fucking, like, a violent creep. The scene where he's like, put this in your mouth and suck it is so fucking, it feels like... No one's ever put a gun in my mouth and made me suck it, but like it feels like true to life. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and then like, that, oh, this is how it would go. And then that shot of him when he's coming down the steps, drawing the gun, like it cuts to this really low angle after he knocks him down the stairs. He's just so like menacing coming down those steps in that big fucking coat. He's just digging that gun out of his pocket, and like it's awesome. But you know, I saw a, one of the reviews when I was looking at shitty reviews is um, somebody who felt that Juanita. It was like kind of a dig at her character is being almost it was a fundamental misreading of that character on the level of like Skylar White and Breaking Bad. Yes. Like, where they were like, well, she's just be they the women are harpies or and it's like, no, she's fucking right. Like, I mean, Anthony is a much more sympathetic character than say Walter White when you find out Walter was just always an asshole. But like he's fucked up when he comes home and she's not wrong to call him out for being fucked up. Right. And she is right because it's like, okay, well, like I'm pregnant, we're together. And you were like, no, I have to go out into the Marines so I can find myself. And now you're all like fucked up. Like, yeah, of course, like you would be mad at that person. Like I said, like a lesser movie would just be like, oh, this is just the bitch, like cheating girlfriend character. But she is she's her own person with her own like goals and desires and angers that are like all all real and all like all uh, valid. And um, I was just what is the name of the guy who played the Jewish butcher again? Uh, Seymour Cassell. Cassell, yeah, he's, man, I made a note of that. That was a fucking awesome performance for a guy who is like, what, probably for like a combined like five minutes in the movie. If that. Yeah. Just like that first scene where he's like, oh, you related to, to Tony Curtis? 
<laughs> just kidding. <laughs> it's like, like another another like character says one line and you're like, oh, I get what type of guy this is. Like he's such a good like just like nice like corny old Jewish guy. <laughs> like damn, yeah. When we say like top to bottom all great performances, that's like look no further. Yeah, everybody brings it to this movie. Now I do got to admit even though it's kind of showing that Anthony is off the deep end, it feels really good when he gets his revenge on Cowboy. I love, yeah. It's like one of those scenes that like when I saw it when I was like younger and I was in high school, I was like, oh yeah, he finally beats that dude's ass. And now you, you know, you realize it's like, no, this is just how this guy's going to respond to any pressure or stress. He's just going to redline and lose it. But still, when you see that scene, you're like, hell yeah, like beat the fuck out of him. (laughs) Like, fuck that guy jose's trying to stop it and kirby holds him back and he's like no he needs his ass whooped <laughs> yeah. speaking of jose how brady rodriguez is it i wish he got a little more to do in this movie than he does because he's really good and then like kind of when they get back from nami he's just like an adrenaline junkie speed freak but he does have that one moment you know after they blow the truck up during the heist i guess i'm getting a little head but we could blow they blow after the truck blows up and like uh delilah gets killed and he's like running down the road, like, whoa, did you see what I did? And like on a dime, as soon as he sees her dead, like the way he like changes his tone. It's just, again, you said good performances all around. And Freddie Rodriguez is another one who it's not that they didn't give him enough to work with. He just doesn't have a whole lot of screen time in it. You know what I mean? I wonder if he was in a lot of deleted scenes. The thing he did that you pointed out, that's something that they repeatedly, almost every performance, they do great in this movie, like adrenaline acting. Like showing someone who's like pumped up by by something violent and insane and then sort of like coming to like how that um, the crash on that would be like is so good. Absolutely. You know, and this is a movie that I'd like to see that NC-17 cut because this is a movie that definitely relishes in gore, not in like a look how cool this gore is way, but in a like. This is what violence is like, and it's not pretty, and it's not good way. Yes, yes. One of the best squib shots in the entire world is when Chris Tucker shoots that cop in the back of the head, like that fucking terrible hole in his head, and that blood just like pouring out down his face. Like, there's no like, this isn't like, hey, you're getting off in this violence sort of way. It's like, yeah, this is what this shit is like, and it's bad. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's like, oh, do you want to like go to war and rob a fucking bank? This is what's probably going to happen. Do you want this like in your mind forever? (laughs) so yeah uh leading to the heist it does feel like it kind of goes from one point to another sort of quickly but you know then you get to the heist which is like kind of what the movie was sold on is it was this or here's a heist movie you know all the commercials were like of them and their white paint and like you know setting up for a robbie again that's like the final fucking 20 minutes of the movie really but uh, the white face paint you know it's the most iconic thing about this movie and i I said the movie doesn't hinge around that but goddamn that really is a cool looking the way they paint their faces, like that whole costume, the, the look of it is just really fucking cool looking. Like Even though it's yes. not maybe what the movie hinges around, it's really awesome. Yeah, like they definitely knew what a fucking cool costume they made because it's like, that's sort of the image they marketed the movie with a lot. But like, damn, I still cannot believe that they made this for 15 million. Like, I know that's like, you know, inflation and everything, but still, okay, even if you double that, which, you know, inflation hasn't like doubled 15 million in 95 till now i don't think but okay 30 making that movie for 30 million dollars now would be i don't know who the fuck could do that that's insane yeah they're gods dude i know i know i really wish the hughes brothers had gotten to do like you said and i hadn't thought about the pre-9-11 thing kind of 
neutered them, unfortunately. I feel like there's two things that kind of fuck that up is one getting neutered by, yeah, like you said, they couldn't necessarily do movies that showed America as like a shitty hellscape after 9-11 that wasn't in vogue to do for a long time or something you could even get away with. And I also think it might have been the shitty reception that this got. You know what I mean? They saw consensus and people shit all over it. It probably didn't give them the same opportunities that they had, which is why they had to take sort of director for higher things like from hell and stuff. That's like, and I feel like if they make this movie in like 2009, right. It's one of those things where it's like, Hey, this isn't like directly about the recession in Iraq, but it like kind of is like, it was something like that. I feel like it would be like, I don't think it would have been like a huge blockbuster, but I feel like it would have been something like Michael Clayton where like people really like it at the time. And then even 10 years later, there's like a revival where people are like, Oh damn, do you remember this movie? It's like fucking amazing. But just because of the time it came out, it just, it, it, that fucked them. I was saying to someone on Twitter that, you know, China now, uh, according to some metrics, is the richest nation in the world. Okay. China gives the Hughes brothers eight and nine figure budgets to like make movies about like famous American like crimes and tragedies. And, uh, uh, you know, give the Hughes brothers $200 million to make an Iran Contra movie. Oh my God. Oh my God. So China, China, yeah, China, if you're listening, this will cost you nothing. It'll be, like, the best movie ever. Everyone's going to love it. And it, it, important, like, for your purposes, as, you know, Trump and then Biden have ratcheted up tensions, it will make people, you know, like the American empire less. <laughs> what you guys have going on that's between you, you know, I'm just saying as a guy who loves movies. I- I'm going to, like, somehow manage to get this to directly to I'm just going to take an audio clip of this and like send it, record it in a little tiny tape and send it in the mail. It just says China on the front. <laughs> the address is China. And, I mean, and, yeah. and see if someone gets it. They look, they have their own, they're making their own shit now. And they, you know, they have a very big TV and film industry. It's only getting bigger, but they don't have the Hughes brothers. And they, I think they would admit that just, you know, you're not going to, they're the other side of the world. You don't have those guys. I'm sorry. You don't. Maybe one day you'll have your equivalent. But for now, this is something you could do that will make everyone so happy and people will love it. Even like even people who like never stop talking about China, the like the people who like call uh, LeBron La China. They'll be like, they won't fully get the movie, but it's going to be so good because you gave them, you know, 200 million dollars to make it that they'll still love it. Like they'll enjoy it on a probably lower level. Cause there are going to be some cool scenes in it, but like no, everyone, it's going to be a huge movie everywhere. Everyone is going to see it. Fucking bring Lorenz Tate back. Have Lorenz Tate play like a freeway Rick Ross type character. How cool <laughs> would that be? <laughs> I love this. I love this idea. I, I now I'm at my new goal is to make this happen. <laughs> yeah. The goal starting this podcast was to make people reevaluate dead presidents, but my new goal is to make sure that this movie happens. <laughs> I just I don't see why not. It would cost China so little. Right. Like compared to what they have, like, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you you brought up 2009, but let's say that this movie had been made in 2004. It would have ended with some sort of character arc for Anthony. You know, what I like about this movie is that there is not really a happy, well, there's no happy ending at all, but like, he, there's no like sort of arc. He just fucks up and ends up fucking everything up for everyone around him and getting people around him killed. And by the end of the heist, you've got Delilah dead. You've got Jose dead. Um, I, I do love the part too. Again, speaking of Kirby's warmth, there's the part where he defends 
Anthony going out, but I also like the part where he doesn't think fucking twice about giving Marisol Jose's cut when he's like, Jose gets that cut and he's just like done. Yeah. A scene I love is when, um, when Chris Tucker and, uh, what was his name again? I, it, Cleon, yeah, Cleon. That's such a good scene. Again, we were talking about how Cleon is a great character because he's not a cartoon, but that is like, yeah, if he like, you know, hit a score like that, because he's like a delusional psycho, he would be like, oh, I'm like Jesus Christ. I'm going to like give out presents and use my like, you know, friend who's been fucking destroyed by like drugs and PTSD to go along with me because I'll just, I'll just go along with me because I'm telling him to. That entire arc is so good. Yeah, I know. I know. And that's what makes, oh, I did not notice this until now. So then obviously, you know, every, like I said, everything goes bad. Cleon fucks it all up. Uh, that really haunting shot of Skip when they find him dead. And that he's listening to God. when they come in that tired of being alone's playing on the TV. And it's that just depressing fucking apartment that he's in. The way that the cop, like the way that that song plays and the way that that song takes over every sound after the cops break in and as they slowly bring their guns down and they're like, oh, what the fuck? Like that scene is so good. And that song choice is amazing because yeah, it's like, I would say the loneliest character in the entire movie. Yeah. He, yeah. He just wanted to be like the life of the party, the center of attention and America and kind of his, his friend, uh, Anthony destroyed that and destroyed him. I had never noticed until now. Did you notice the cop who finds him is Polly Walnuts? No. Yeah. Oh, and that's a Polly Walnuts. Who's probably like 10 years out of in, being in state prison too. <laughs> did you know that did you know that he was like a stick-up guy in the seven, late 70s wait no i didn't know that yeah yeah tony sirica was a he was like a stick-up guy in new york city who would like apparently like kick up to lucchese's and shit he would like rob nightclubs and all this shit and he like when he was in prison they were like oh you should act there was like an acting program that's fucking crazy i didn't know that about him yeah i when he popped up i was like wait a minute i fucking know and it took me i had to rewind it and i'm like I think it's Polly Walnuts. I always forget his real name. I so I like you know what checked him out on on IMDb and I was like no shit yeah if you if you go back and check that's that's absolutely him that comes in with the gun. He even has a character name which is funny because he doesn't have one in the movie but it's like Officer Spinelli or something like that. Yeah okay I was wrong. He was like um, fifteen years out of being man. This, this is a sidetrack but like prison sentences in the seventies and sixties are so weird because it's like. He did armed robbery, basically. And they're like, we're sending you to four years in Sing Sing. And he, they let him out for 20 months. There were so many like weird things like that in the 70s where a guy like kills two people. And they're like, well, we're really mad at you. We're throwing the book at you. You get nine years. And then they serve like six. But then it'll be like, yeah, someone like, someone like, um, I don't know, like their car like drifted out of the driveway and like hit somebody and didn't kill them and it's like yeah they got 35 years and did every single day it's so weird like i they were just guessing back then i feel like with sentences not that they aren't now but like what the fuck like 20 months for like a string of armed robberies is insane like they just had one of those big balls that they kind of rolled around and pulled a number out of and were like <laughs> <laughs> you get 35 years <laughs> yeah it's so weird it's so, like it's when you read about like a criminal trial from like really i think like probably before the crime bill it's just like okay like what's it gonna be this time there's just there's no telling you know you've got me rethinking something i was gonna say about the ending here too and that's so you get to the end and 
So first of all, the way Martin Sheen condescendingly says that part about, I was in World War II. A real war, I might add. <laughs> Such a great generational, you know, this idea that like generational divides worse than it ever is now is not the case. Like that's always been the way it is. Older generations hate younger generations and vice versa. And that's the way it is. And it's the way it's always going to be. And to me, it's the way it always should be. Like there's always be a distrust of the people younger or older than you. Yeah. That's that's life, dude. But so that, of course, you've got the court scene and Lorenz Tate is just so fucking good, man. The way his face kind of slowly screws together when Sheen's talking down to him. And that really incredulous way that he says life, like when he hears his sentence, he is just fucking awesome. He is so good in that part. And I'll always associate walk on by with him tossing a chair at Martin Sheen for the rest of my life. I am so happy that scene's on YouTube. I watch that scene probably like four times a week because it's it's like, seriously, it's just like, you know, one of the best like line readings of the 90s. Where life, the fuck you mean life? All this shit I did for this motherfucking country, man, fuck you. And like, like it's so, because he's still like, that character would be what, like 22 you know, it's so like it, it does such a good job of showing like how far of a way he's come and that he is a killer now. He is like, you know, in some ways he's a serious guy, but then also shows he's still a kid. But OK, so I was talking in the Gross Point Blank episode. Bobby and I talked about how, you know, movies now have to have 25 endings. And I remember even when this came out, people bitching about the ending kind of just ending. But again, I disagree with that. I, you don't need to see what happens to everybody else. You don't need to see, although this is where I said you have me rethinking things. Cause I'm thinking, well, you know, Kirby's going to get the same 15 to life, but you are right. Things were done so randomly that for all I know, Kirby got like two years probation or something. Yeah. Yeah. There's no telling. There's no telling. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. Like I would have, I like, there's a part of me where it's like, I do want to see what happens to Kirby because I love that character. But also like, I think it's a conscious choice of being like, that's kind of how it like it is. Things just come to a stop and you don't really know. Like the point, the point isn't so much like, oh, look what happened to these characters that we know. The point is like, look how badly things can go. And then you're just fucked. And the, the, I feel like the choice of having it end like that of what the fuck do you mean life, throwing the chair, walk on by prison bus over is like, Yeah. Even the even the like morbid fun of this fucked up story, that's done. There's nothing more. You're closed off. Just like probably what Haywood Kirkland thought, like his life was closed off. It, and you're, you know, you're a kid. You're like 21, 22. And it's like, what the fuck do you mean my life is over? Like what? I, I don't know anything, you know? And especially after, like he said, you know, he thought he was doing for his country when he went off. There's still that naive sort of like, well, I I did things for this country. Even coming back and knowing that he was in a fucking shitty place he shouldn't have been. Still believing like, well, I did things for this country, you know? Right, right. It, it's like how a child would take it kind of where it's like, what do you mean? Like, I did what you wanted me to do. And it's like, no, that's not the like you've learned far too late. To not do what they want you to do, to not go to Vietnam, but like, yeah, no, it just, it, it's, it is, I think it's a perfect ending, the more we talk about it. Yeah. Last thing I'll say, Anna, you don't need to see what happens to Anthony in prison. You can kind of piece together how prison's probably going to fucking go for him at this point. It's not going to be good because he's just a goddamn kid. Yeah. You know, yeah. But you don't need to see that. You don't need like a coda where it's like him fucking with some shitty cellmate or getting shanked. Or, you know what I mean? Like, you don't need that. You can piece it together yourself. You can you can make your own ending. Maybe he gets out in 15 years and turns shit around. Who the fuck knows? 
whatever you want to do with it. But, you know, you can kind of piece together how things are probably going to go once he gets there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. all right, well, that's Dead Presidents, man. Um, fucking phenomenal movie. And if you have not seen it, and for some reason you've listened to this entire thing without having seen it, I wish you had not done that. <laughs> so let's let's get let's get to the soundtrack. So since there's two volumes here, I'm gonna do like a speed run thing like I did with Gross Point Blank with the two volumes. Uh and another thing with this is these are a bunch of standards. Like, what the fuck can I say about tired of being alone that you don't know? You know what I mean? Right. So so like, I'm just going to go through and do a quick run, but I will do some background information and I will give one little thing before I start talking about the albums. It's kind of my endorsement for these soundtracks as a group. So volume one was released on September 26, 1995. It opened at number 32, but eventually made its way up to number 14. It went gold, which prompted them making a volume two. The top 10, the weekend that it was released was Mariah Carey's Daydream. Number two was Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Number three was the Dangerous Mind soundtrack. Number four was Hootie and the Blowfish's Cracked Rearview, which has been on this list about 10 times now that I've done these. Um, Number five was Reba McIntyre starting over. Number six was Tim McGraw's All I Want. Number seven was Michael Bolton's Greatest Hits. Number eight was TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. And number nine was ACDC's Ball Breaker. And number 10 was Shania Twain's The Woman in Me. So... Volume two didn't come out until April 2nd, 1996, which is a pretty long time between volumes one and two. Usually those kind of come quickly, but they they waited a while. This one did not chart. The top 10 was Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, which if that gives you any idea of what a fucking behemoth that album was, it was that was huge. Number two back in September, number one all the way in April still. That shit does not happen now. Yeah, even, even like Drake. Drake will be like number one for like three weeks, but that's just... I mean, with the streaming economy, especially just really like, yeah, it's not like that anymore. Oh, yeah. I've talked about that a lot on this show, how like, you know, an album back then could have charted at number 100 and still sold like 50,000 units the first week, whereas like number 100 now means that like somebody favorited one of your songs on Spotify. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's just such a I feel like there has to be like. Because I don't know. I don't think we're going back to people owning any type of media, but there has to be like. We have to figure out a new thing because we're, right now what we do is like a thousand streams equals one album sold. Yeah. But so the artist doesn't get paid dick on it. No, nothing. Spotify can make all their money. So number two is Fuji's The Score, number th- which is a fucking great album. Number three was Celine Dion's Falling Into You. Number four was Stone Temple Pilots' Tiny Music. Number five was Mariah Carey's Daydream. Number six was Oasis's What's the Story Morning Glory. Number seven was Bush's 16 Stone. Number eight was The Beatles' Anthology. Number nine was The Ghetto Boys Resurrection, which is another fucking great album. Great album. Number 10 was Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise. So that one was a lot more uh, wide ranging than the top 10 when volume one came out. You had a lot more of, I guess, of like a, a mix of shit on there. Um, so what I'll say about these albums before they come out. So my love for soul music came when I was a little kid. I had this tiny little orange TV that my, I think my grandparents gave it to us in my bedroom. And I would stay up late you know my parents would fall asleep i'd get up and it had like a fucking hanger on it they got two channels so really the only thing i could get was like nbc and it would play low late night reruns of soul train and i guess a five-year-old six-year-old kid it was something different than my parents listened to and i i mean my my parents liked that shit but my dad was like a classic rock guy my mom was really into like madonna and pop of the time and the thing about it was 
when I was a kid and even as a teenager, soul music was hard to find outside of buying whole albums, which is a daunting thing because there was such a fucking huge array of things to buy. Yeah. There may have been some time life like this is soul mix. It was like $300, but like that wasn't affordable in my fucking house. So really outside of, and I'm, this is old man Eric telling a story, but outside of like taping songs off of the radio and like listening to like the AM stations, there wasn't much of an option. So what I loved about these soundtracks at the time, and I still now is that they changed that for me. It was a, this, hey, here's two discs of really solid soul music collected in at an affordable package. And it also introduced me to stuff that I didn't know. You know, Curtis Mayfield's If There's a Hell Below, We're All Going to Go is one of my favorite songs of all time. I fucking love Curtis Mayfield. I know, I know, man. And that song is just so fucking good. But I remember I remember riding around in the, that $200 Oldsmobile Cutlass that I bought in high school listening to love train on one of those things that like went into your tape deck and hooked into your discman. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a lot of like really good feelings with these albums and they mean a lot to me. And the, the sequencing on them is perfect, which is something I'll return to in a little bit. But the biggest endorsement that I can give for these is that if you're somebody who's like trying to get into soul music or whatever, you can't do better than these is like a jumping off point. It is a really great collection of soul music, both discs, so yeah, I'll just, like I said, I'll run through, just do a little quick track by track, but I don't need to talk a whole lot about these because again, like a lot of these songs are standards. Like what the fuck am I going to tell you that somebody else hasn't told you? I'm not a music, I don't know, I've studied music. I don't know, like they played the C chord dropped. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So it's, <laughs> it's just sort of like, here's what I think about this song and here's some background information that I got. So number one, Sly and the Family Stones, If You Want Me to Stay, which came from the album Fresh. That was a departure from their previous album, which was There's a Riot going on. So at this point, Sly was writing without, Sly is a unique character. He was writing without input from his band, and he retired an entire scrapped alternate version of Fresh, this song included, which at this point you can find in like underground markets and, of course, the internet at this point. Um, but I do like that they went with something from Fresh and not something from There's a Riot going on, because There's a Riot going on, a lot of songs on there would have felt more appropriate for this movie. But I like that they went with Fresh, which was like him moving back towards a popular sort of sound. And, uh, you know, as far as this song goes, I just love the sort of uh, sparse instrumentation and Sly's vocals and the entire Let Myself Be message of it. But I just think it's a really great opening song for the for the disc. So up next is Isaac Hayes' Walk On By, which was written by Burt Bacharach for Dionne Warwick. And Hayes took this like sort of shorter pop song and turned it into this epic sort of gorgeous, smoky funk song. And the original version is actually 12 minutes long. And it's you know, I knew this song coming into this album because it had been sampled by shit tons of rap songs over the years and still probably is. But I you know, always associate it with the end of Dead Presidents. And I can completely understand why they went with the four minute radio edit, because it would be weird pacing to have track two be 12 minutes long, especially when there's an 11 minute track towards the end that kind of anchors the ending. But um, I do suggest checking out the 12 minute version if you have not. It's a very interesting song. Like it is such he makes Hayes makes such interesting choices on that song. And it does like. Yeah, lyrically, when you hear it, it's like, oh, this is like very similar to pop songs of this era, kind of like guy gets broken, broken up with just walk on. But like, that's the perfect like chorus phrase, you know, or hook phrase, but like turning it into like a huge sweeping thing where it's like that devastating is very it's an amazing choice. Oh, and it's got that like sort of wall of sound esque production like i love when it quiets down a little bit before the end and then it like when he breaks out you know should to see this man cry and the fucking strings just fucking yeah. kick on like that boy i did not mean to butcher singing that as bad as i did so i'll <laughs> I have my editor put 
Isaac Hayes' actual vocals over mine when we <laughs> do this. <laughs> I sound like Isaac Hayes. All right. So next is James Brown's The Payback from the album of the same name. Now, here is a fact that fucking blew my mind. I did not know this. First of all, the song was written by James Brown's trombonist, but James Brown took it and heavily changed the lyrics to be this revenge tale. Speaking of lyrics, one of the most misunderstood lyrics in history, and it's even been, fuck, uh, I think Chris Tucker said it in, in one of the Rush Hour movies. I don't know karate, but I know crazy. That is not what he's saying. <laughs> he's saying, I don't know karate, but I know Karazer. So James Brown took that from a comedy routine by Clay Tyson, who was the comedian for the James Brown Review. And it was a joke that he told as a punchline about him carrying a straight razor. So he didn't need to know karate. He knew Karazer. But like up until literally when I was researching this, I thought it was, I don't know karate. I know crazy. And I feel like fucking everyone thinks that's what he's saying. That's the joke. Everyone said like they, everyone's repeated that. I never knew Karazer is like, a, that's a way better joke. Damn. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I like it more that way. And now, now I can hear it when I listen to it, but I've always just gone with the idea that it was not Karazer. It was crazy. But as far as this song goes, it's just really stripped down for James Brown, who was like, you know, James Brown was all about bombast. So I like this. I like that it pushes his vocals to the front because, you know, his vocals were fucking incredible and should always be like the star of the show. And the bass line is just fucking incredible. Honestly, I feel like this is one of those songs that when you listen to it, you feel cooler than you actually are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just one of those ones that makes you feel fuck. Not me. I mean, I'm cool anyways. But like, you know, somebody else might like listen to this and be like, yeah, I feel cooler than I am. <laughs> so... You've got the Spinners' I'll Be Around, which first appeared on their self-titled album and was just this fucking huge hit. I actually remember Rappin' Forte sampling this for a minor hit that he had in the 90s, which is a name that, like, I don't know, maybe a lot of you haven't thought of in years, if you even remember who that is. But he had a, that might even be my introduction to this song, but I doubt it, because this was a staple of the radio. This is a song everyone knows. So it's one of those songs that's hard to talk about to a great extent without saying anything original. I just think it's a really mature breakup song and, you know, it has this sort of wistful tone and I think that fits and it's just, it's a classic for a reason. It's a, just an incredible song. Uh, Barry White's never going to give you up from his album stone gone. So this one was actually a huge hit in the U S and abroad. It did well in the UK, Australia, Belgium, Canada, and the Netherlands and other places. I think if you took a lot of Barry White songs and put any other vocalist in, they would probably be at least not work as well, if not bordering on cheesy. Like, imagine this song with Tom Jones singing it. Yeah, no way, no way. It's Barry White had that fucking cool to him, man. And I just, I love his vocals. I love the way he sings, girl, I just can't live without you. The way he hits those notes is really good. And, you know, even in high school, when I was like self-conscious about what I listened to, to some sort of degree where it was like, well, this is like grandpa music. or You know, I had a Barry White Greatest Hits album. So like, I think that's as good of a, an endorsement as I can give for Barry White in this song as possible. Um. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, I Miss You, from their debut album of the same name, which also had the song If You Don't Know Me By Now. This was their smaller single, but I like that they went with this one instead of If You Don't Know Me By Now. So this song gives you some Philly Soul representation right up front in the album. I like that because Philly Soul was really awesome. Uh, I do like this song, like I said, better than If You Don't Know Me By Now. The harmonizing under Harold Melvin's vocals is just gorgeous. It's just a really pretty soul ballad. The Dramatics Get Up and Get Down was from their debut album, What You See Is What You Get. And then again... This is the least successful single from that album. The most successful being In the Rain, which is also a really great song. But uh, it's one of those ones that feels like it should have like a built-in dance around it, like a song, like a dance called The Get Up, Get Down or something like that. But, you know, especially when you that call response stuff where he's like, get up. But it's just a great and nice change to in the middle. Like you get a couple ballads leading up to this. So it's nice to get a, like a dancier, more up-tempo song to kind of break that. So now we come to Curtis Mayfield's If There's a Hell Below, We're All Gonna Go. And every time I say that, I want to do that scream that he does at the end. Every time I like say that title out loud. But, you know, this is from his solo debut album, Curtis. 
It was meant to serve as a warning regarding the state of race relations and the tempest growing in America's inner cities. To me, this song sounds like a funky theme song for the apocalypse. And I'm not saying that because of the name and the book of Revelation stuff at the beginning. It just, there's a feeling to it. Yes. It's just, yeah, it's one of the fucking, honestly, it's one of the coolest songs ever written. The lyrics are fucking great too, man. Like people running from their worries while the judge and his juries dictate the law that's partly flaws. And Nixon talking about, don't worry, they don't know, there could be no show. And if there's hell below, we're all going to go. Like that is fucking incredible, man. Yeah. Just one of the greatest American talents, especially of this era. I know, I know. Yeah, it's just, and, and it feels like it's ending at five and a half minutes and it picks back up. I could seriously do like an hour on this song, but I'm not. It's just, it's Mayfield's best, to me, it's Curtis Mayfield's best song. And that's really saying something. I would put it up there for sure. Yeah, I, there's, I mean, you know, yeah, no, I'm going to stick with it. Now you got, if I start rethinking, I'm going to end up here for 10 minutes trying to think of something different. But so you've got Aretha Franklin's Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. Uh, it's from the album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You. This one spent 11 weeks on the charts, peaking at number nine. And the, the funny thing is, I actually associate this song more with Kate Fear, because it's that scene where De Niro tries to like serenade Juliette Lewis with this song. Yeah, it's just a gorgeous song. There's like a country influence at its core. The vocals are really pretty. And I really like when she goes really big at the end. Yes. So now we hit the misstep. What I would call the misstep, it's not even a bad song, but Jesse and Trina's Where is the Love? Cover of Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway. I, you know, I love 90s R&B, but this one just kind of feels out of place in an album full of classic soul music. I Granted, it's a cover of an old soul song, but even that song's not one of my favorites. The song's just kind of okay. It's, it sounds like a song I'd hear at Kmart. Like pleasant, but it's just kind of forgettable. Al Green's Tired of Being Alone from Al Green's Get Next to You. So an early version of this is supposed to go on Green as Blues, but it was postponed for production issues. It eventually became the song we know now. And again, we talked about this, but the way it's used in the movie, man, it's just such a, I mean, it could almost be on the nose. Like you said, it was like the loneliest guy in the movie and then him laying dead in front of Tired of Being Alone playing. But it's it's just one of those ones that like, again, what can I say about this that hasn't been said before? I think it's one of the best soul songs of all time. And I do like, again, this is like reined in instrumentation and it lets his vocals do the work. It's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the way that, yeah, they just sort of let it play out and take over the scene is so I know I said that before, but like it's already an amazing song, but it like, yeah, it gave it a new meaning for me beyond just a romantic meaning. Yeah. It gives it like a darker shade. You know what I mean? (laughs) Because you associate it with like, yeah, finding him overdosed in front of his television. Um, the OJ's Love Train. So that's from the album Backstabbers. Now, Backstabbers is a song I first learned about from Junior Mafia. <laughs> Weirdly mid-90s thing. But this is widely considered one of the first disco songs, and it's also their only number one song in the Billboard charts. Yeah, and the thing I like about Love Train is... <laughs> okay, so Love Train, it, from a certain perspective, is somewhat cheesy. Not to me. I love the sincerity behind this song. Like... People all over the world join hands, start a love train. Could be like the cheesiest shit in the world. But they're so sincere. <laughs> like, And it's just a fun song. And it, and it makes sense for the time it was written in, though. Because it's easy to look at things from the 70s and go like, oh, that's so fucking stupid. How could you think that? Well, like, the 70s is kind of when they, like, broke a lot of the things that are broken now. And so, like, all, all this shit's written, like, before that or while they're doing it. And the 70s were kind of, like, probably the last, like, get-off point for a lot of the problems that we have now. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. This was like just prior to that breaking, I feel like, or like in the midst of it, (laughs) there was still some sort of optimism that things are going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, 
if you look at all this shit that like Carter did, where it's like starting Operation Cyclone, uh, deregulating credit, trucking, all these things, that was the last get off point to not be where we are now. And that like this song is like, even if it's like not because it's like pre Carter, but like there is some awareness of the time you're in where it's like, okay, we can like, we don't have to go down this road. You know, you just made me think this song kind of, I feel like is like the song embodiment of Anthony at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Like there's this like naive sort of like, well, things might be good, but that's actually a really interesting perspective on a song like this. I like that. I just generally think that about like corny 70s shit, but like definitely this song too. Well, the next one is Isaac Hayes' The Look of Love, which is from the album To Be Continued. So this is a Dusty Springfield cover. It was also composed by Burt Bacharach. Those two working together was always great. This is another one that's been sampled on a whole bunch of hip-hop songs. And yeah, it's just one of those smoky room sort of soul songs that I actually love how he leans into the emotion here. Like there's parts where you can hear him hitching his breath between lines. Like, like he's like upset, you know, but I, it works, man. It's it's a because it, this song feels like it deserves that sort of emotion, you know? Yeah. Okay, so then you got the Danny Elfman Dead Presidents theme, which, again, I don't know how to talk about, like, score stuff, but the score for this is really cool. It almost plays like a horror film score with that weird, that, like, sort of distorted, like, I have no idea what instrument it is, if it's just a synth or whatever. But the score for this movie is really fucking cool. (laughs) All right, so disc two. One thing I like about disc two is that the choices in this aren't quite as safe. Like it's a few huge hits surrounded by some lesser known stuff. So you start off with James Brown's. I got the feeling from his 19th album, which was nine years into his solo career. It's just so funny to look at that now, like how that machine used to work where artists would put out like three, four albums a year. Yeah. 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 They were like 90% filler a lot of times. Um, so the album is also called I Got the Feeling. It was the song that the Jackson five used when they auditioned for Barry Gordy that got them their Motown contract. But yeah, it's just funky as shit, man. Like, I love how the instruments drop out during the baby, baby, baby. But again, what do I say about this? Like, everybody knows this song. (laughs) (laughs) It's just one of those ones everyone knows. So now you got the impressions keep on pushing from the album of the same name. I actually think Mayfield's solo output kind of overshadows how good the impressions were when he was with them. So this was actually their sixth top 40 hit after only three albums, which is, again, when you're talking about a black act in 19 late 1960s you know having six like mainstream not like r&b charts but like top 40 hits in only three albums like they were a machine yeah that's crazy yeah you know and again i'm a sucker i'm a soft said this before on here i'm a sucker for harmonizing this i love the beach boys so much but this song just kills it it's not their best song on here though they have two songs on here and the other one would be what i would consider the best so the undisputed truth smiling faces sometimes follows it up which was from the Undisputed Truth self-titled album, which also, if you have not seen it, has one of the coolest album covers of all fucking time. Like, it's just such a rad cover. So look for that after you're done listening to this. This was recorded by The Temptations first, but it was recorded the exact same year as Undisputed Truth. They just decided to take that song and, like, the same year be like, okay, here's another band on the label. Record this, too. It's their only top 40 song, reaching number three. And uh, in the movie, they use OJ's Backstabbers at one point. And I like that they went with this song for their backstabbing song when Cuddy pulls up. It's a little on the nose, you know, smiling faces when he pulls up in his car listening to it. But I I, I like it. Uh, This is the better version of the two between this and the Temptations one. The Temptations one is like 12 minutes long, which I don't mind. But this one has the can you dig it part, which is automatically makes it cooler. (laughs) Uh, And it sounds appropriately paranoid. 
Uh, Joe Harris was a great vocalist. You know, he didn't have that smooth voice, but that was very unique. Uh, Curtis Mayfield's Ride Out for the Darkness from Back to the World. Not one of his highly regarded albums that he made during his peak, so I'm glad they chose it. Uh, It's just a cool song. It was very much in his wheelhouse for the time. The Temptations, Just My Imagination, Running Away With Me. It was from the album Sky's the Limit. So at the time the Temptations made this, they were in the middle of their psychedelic phase, and their fans were not happy with it. So they kind of, uh, one of the songwriters relented and made this, which ended up becoming one of their standards. Like this is one of their best known songs, but it was like a sort of a pushback from other guys in the band that were mad that they were doing this psychedelic stuff and wanted to do a poppy temptation song again. The intruders cowboys to girls from the album of the same name. It was the only real big hit they had, but it was a massive influence on Philly soul. So I haven't really dug into this band a whole lot, but it reminds me a lot of Mel and Tim who had the song starting all over again. I, I really like them, but, I should check out more of the intruder stuff because I really like this song. They're just one of those bands. I can't tell you much about them. I just, I, this is a really great song. Jerry Butler's never give you up from the album. The Iceman cometh, which is a really funny album title. Wasn't a huge hit, but it has endured and it's been covered by a lot of artists over the years, like Eddie Floyd and the black keys. Yeah. It's just a pretty soul ballad. Stevie wonders. I was made to love her from the album of the same name. Again, huge hit. Uh, it never made it to number one and it was held back by a fuck. Held back by the doors light my fire is what kept this song out of ever hitting the number one spot. And I've expressed my displeasure for the doors on here before. But uh, he ad-libs that last line when he says, you know, Stevie ain't going to leave her. That was something that he just ad-libbed at the last second and it stuck. And it's one of the more famous things in the song. And again, what do I say about this? Everyone knows it. It's it's a great song. So the Impressions Man Oh Man, which is my favorite of the two songs on here, didn't appear on any of their albums until they were long broken up. It was on 1992's anthology, 1961 through 1977. It was never actually on an album. I was surprised to learn that because I feel like I knew this one from the radio as a kid, but I probably heard it here first. But yeah, I just, it's a love letter to places that aren't America. And it kind of ties it in with some woman that he met and lost, but it's all about like France is great. Rome is great. Spain is great. And uh, just this really wistful sound that works well with the lyrics. Next is Sam and Dave's When Something Is Wrong With My Baby from the album Double Dynamite. Sam and Dave deserve to be bigger than they were, I think. They they were primarily known for Soul Man, which isn't necessarily their best song. Not even close, I don't think. But uh, this is just a really pretty song, and I like how their voices kind of strain on the chorus. I like when artists can let the like warts and all things show when they're recording a song. And uh, yeah, I just I love it. Curtis Mayfield's We the People Who Are Darker Than Blue, which is the last song on side A of Curtis. But this is a live version, not that version. And I don't know why they went with this one, but I'm glad they did because I don't have any live albums of his. So this is like, I've heard the studio version a bunch. I have Curtis is one of my favorite albums. And uh, it's a great song. And it's a really good live version. It's significantly longer than the album version. And then you end the soundtracks with James Brown's Ain't That a Groove from It's a Man's 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 World. It's just a mid-tier James Brown song, which means it's still very good. And uh, I think it's a nice way to close out the soundtracks. So... That's the albums. Let's do a quick little wrap up here and we can finish this up. Songs that appeared elsewhere first. Um, All of them aside from Danny Elfman's theme and Jesse and Trina's cover of Where is the Love. Movie tracks that were not on either of the albums. So the movie actually had quite a few songs that didn't make the soundtracks. You've got Otis Redding's Down in the Valley, which I wish had made it on here. Uh, You've got Edwin Starr's 25 Miles. You've got uh, James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Marvin Gaye and Mary Wells, Once Upon a Time, and Marvin Gaye's What's Happening, Brother. So is the album on Spotify? Yes, the whole thing's on Spotify, including the ones that weren't on the album. The one thing I will say, and this is why I said the sequencing on this is great, and I'll get back to this later. 
like all these lists, it's not sequenced the same. And I think that hurts it because the sequencing on these, I think, makes a lot of this. It's very perfectly sequenced. Okay, so Felix, I already know what your answer to this is going to be. Um, the movie, would you consider it an essential? Stream it or skip it? Absolutely stream it. If not, buy it. Yes, it's one of those. Honestly, like I, I, for me, it's an essential. Yes, like go go buy it. Go buy this movie. Um, like I said earlier, it's to me, it's one of the greatest American films of the 90s. And I, I think you already knew what my answer was going to be here. So um, the soundtracks, I would deem essentials, both of them. They're among the best mixes of old soul music you're likely to find. Don't stream it. Don't cherry pick it. Honestly, don't even go on Spotify and listen to it. Like it's worth having these albums sequenced as they were sequenced on the soundtracks. You can always go that route if you'd like. If it's the way to get you to listen to it, go listen to it that way. But it's an essential soundtrack and is absolutely an essential 90s soundtrack. Both discs. Absolutely. Do you think the two work well together? Like the movie and the soundtrack, do they work well together as like a cohesive unit, like the soundtrack within the movie? Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like the soundtrack does a good job of like taking music from the general era, if not exact era, that the movie is taking place in, but not doing that corny thing where it's like, you know, like you said, like Vietnam movie with All Along the Watchtower, where it's like the song everyone knows. They just they do a good job of taking music from that era, but it always fits the mood or like the best possible thing, like adds a new meaning to a scene. I agree. Well, you know, here's the thing. So when you have a movie like a period piece like this, especially one that's such a specifically small period, because it only takes place over a few years. Having the right music as a backdrop is extremely important. And I think this one gets it almost as good as it gets as far as like painting the scenes and the era that you're in and the time that you're in when this movie takes place. Yeah, absolutely. So my top three, and this is fucking so hard, man. Like this is a hard one. So I'm just going to do like a quick top three for each disc. Uh, Volume one is if there's a hell below, we're all going to go. That's an easy one. Uh, Number two is walk on by. And number three is Harold Melvin and the blue notes miss you. And really the only reason Tired of Being Alone didn't make the top three is because I associated at this point with that Al Green's Greatest Hits album that everyone owns at this point. But literally you could take anything in here and sub it out aside from that Jesse and Trina song and I would be like, yeah, that's my top three. Like any of these work. As far as volume two, same deal here where almost anything could be subbed in here. Almost. But uh, my top three for this one I picked was Impressions, Man Oh Man, smiling faces sometimes and when something is wrong with my baby were my top three so uh, as far as further watching and listening goes i love the hughes brothers and i think their entire body of work even when they like i said they sort of they didn't have the creative freedom after this movie i don't think but even then i think that they're interesting filmmakers and i think that their stuff is always worth a watch and as far as listening you know really any old soul is going to work Uh, But I'll specifically shout out Light in the Attic, which is this really amazing record label, has done these really great collections of regional soul and small soul label box sets that they've been putting out for years, and they're all incredible. And then, Felix, I'm going to go with, since you've brought it up earlier, I don't usually do further reading, but go ahead, read Bloods. Please read Absolutely. Man, like I said, I need to go back and revisit it, too. Oh, I'm going to, too. I have it, luckily, like a physical copy. But yeah, everyone should read it. All right. Well, that's Dead Presidents. Felix, thank you so much, man. I'm so glad you came on. And like, I'm fucking really glad I got to talk about this movie. This is what I like when I had Will on. I feel silly even saying this because there's probably a huge amount of traffic that's here because you're on. But go ahead and promote, you know, what you've got a a small podcast that (laughs) a small podcast named Chop Out Trap House started recently. Um, We do have, um, we're doing our first, we're doing a DD campaign that will be coming out around like, very late this year or very early next year 
which I know people have wanted. <laughs> when uh, when do you you don't know when you don't have an exact date yet? Just early. I don't have an exact date. Just like probably like after Christmas, but yet like around like not too far from it. I would say. I, I know how these things work too, man. Like if you like, yeah, I'm gonna do this scene. It's not. Oh no, we did we did it. We're just like we're seeing when we release it. We, well, that's what I mean, though, as far as like, yeah, OK, and then setting a fucking date that just doesn't happen for some reason. Like, it's best not to, like, set up. Yeah. No, I, I legitimately don't know. I just know it's that time frame. Right. Right. All right. Well, Felix, I appreciate you coming on. My Hopefully pleasure. Hopefully anybody who's listened to this is going to check the movie out. And uh, yeah, Felix, I hope you have a great day, man. Thank you, you again. Too. And everybody listening at home, I hope you all have a tremendous weekend. Ain't no use running. He ain't gonna miss you, and he ain't gonna mess around. If you're a movie with original songs, 